Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and today I'm joined by security experts who will introduce themselves. And my icebreaker question is, when you're using an IoT device, you're generating data every second, you get a chance. So every step you take while you're sleeping, if you're giving a device a command, who owns the data? And would you recommend Mike tossing or keeping his beloved Alexa? As I'm the Mike in question here, I think I should go first. And I'm, I think if it's a service, it depends on who owns the data. And I, I'm in favor of keeping my Alexa so I can play Jeopardy on it first thing after I wake up and get my coffee in the mornings. Hi, this is Killian. And I think uh, Sting and the police think Mike should keep it if they're recording. <laughs> Took a second for, for you to get that. Maybe somebody didn't. I am torn. I don't have one of those. I see the appeal and the interest to have a kind of a device you can just talk to and get information. But it's not something that I would probably put in my house. This is Forrest, and I'm, I'm kind of with Killian. I would kind of actually expect that in a couple of years, we'll, we'll start to maybe have like replacements for these that are a little bit more offline. I would hope there's market demand for that. That's kind of my always my go-to is like until there's market demand for something. But until then, I'm probably going to hold off too. And I can't really tell Mike what to do, but that's what I'd recommend. So this data ownership question is huge because previously we've heard about lawyers wanting to use Fitbit data in court. And there was a recent article about Amazon handing over user data in a trial, and they weren't so keen on it at first, but the defendant consented. And so it was kind of like a checkbox, like if you allow your own data to be admitted as evidence, Sure, we'll release it. And so it's it's a blurry subject. So first you think that, okay, data ownership, it's a complicated question. Then you add the legalities of a situation. Things get even more complicated. What are your thoughts on, on this situation, guys? So that was a pretty interesting article. Um, Cindy, I think you and I actually found it uh, independently. And I thought the case was really interesting. I kind of applaud Amazon up front for being like, no, we're not just going to turn over this data in in the court case. Now, that might get a lot of flack from some folks. We have a lot of unresolved questions from the iPhone case in Apple with the San Bernardino shooters, and now this new one. So we have this kind of whole big open legal question where data that's being collected about us or being stored somewhere, sometimes in the hands of others, can be used or the government might try and compel us to use it in court. And I'm not a lawyer, but it, it raises a whole bunch of questions. Like, at what point would voice recording of yourself saying or doing something be considered testifying against yourself? We can't be compelled to testify against ourselves. So I don't know. That That's really interesting to me. And I, I, he eventually did, I believe, allow the data to be released. So the question never really got answered in court. Well, so how this was structured was the people trying to prosecute this gentleman for, for murder we're requesting this data from Amazon. And I think it's important to split out that this isn't a full recording of all the audio that happened in the person's house. It's the queries. It's, hey, order me a bag of chips. Do you want to have that bag of chips sent to you? Yes, I would. And so that's the audio that was recorded. And so Amazon's position is that just because you happen to say these words out loud in your house, instead of walking over to your laptop and typing them into a browser, they shouldn't be treated differently. That it's very similar to what needs to happen for, you know, search queries, for whatever else that comes up, and that it's protected as a, a First Amendment, as a part of your speech is what you're researching. I think it's 
I mean, sure you guys remember when, uh, what's it called, Siri on the iPhone first came out. It had funny responses to weird questions like, hey, Siri, what do I do with a body? And it would give you, you know, kind of comical responses. But then again, it also doesn't look good if you would write that down and submit it to court. Like, oh, Killian's been looking for ways to dispose of bodies. It reflects poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. Reflects a little poorly. (laughs) But I can see how it depends on the context, too. My dad when he was getting his citizenship and they needed like proof of existence. I don't remember why. And so he worked all the time. He doesn't really do the shopping. He would basically just worked and they needed like paper proof of just transactions and things and he didn't have any. So I feel like it's it's good to have a certain amount of your data around just as proof of of maybe an alibi or something like that if you need it. But it's also kind of scary if it if you're self-incriminating yourself. There's also a new technology developed by a Chinese startup where the software can capture all the angles of your face to create a profile. And then they add your face to a database and then it'll give you access to a building. It'll monitor all your movements wherever room you go to. It can help you authorize payments, track down criminals. So who owns the data to to your face? You know, if you're going to use this software, our face is such an intimate aspect to ourselves. It kind of gives the trash talking phrase in your face, like a whole new meaning, like... (laughs) Who would volunteer to sign up with this software? Oh, okay. So so I want to talk about this and then also loop back to where we started with this, with Alexa and the IoT devices. Okay. Because you're, you asked, the, I think, the right question, which is who would sign up for something that would track everywhere we go, that would be like a GPS of exactly where we are and have all our data in it and everything else? And the answer is all of us have that. All of us have a smartphone that listens to us constantly, that has empirically been used to spy on people that Snowden makes journalists put them in the the fridge when they come and visit to chat with them. But we all have made the bargain that says like, oh, this is helpful enough and this is useful enough and I need to play Candy Crush on the subway that that we have these devices in our lives. And face recognition is that's a feature of some cell phones. So I think the answer is everybody. Everyone has made the decision that these things are are useful enough and that while we're concerned more, we need to think about the the issues with them. I think you you have to weigh that against like, oh, it is tremendously helpful and it's great in all these other ways. So the first thing that I thought of when I read that article is, if you guys remember the movie Minority Report, where he's walking around scanning his eye, his retina and giving him ads and things like that. That's the we're halfway there. It was just kind of interesting that kind of sci-fi predicts or directs where we're going. So a little pop culture thing. And the other thing too is I just did. Well, this is being recorded on Friday, so yesterday, a tech talk about HIPAA and data privacy. And one of the kind of items that Health and Human Services calls out is pictures of people could be considered part of a HIPAA record or protected health information, maybe not quite by themselves, but with other pieces of identifiable information. Depending on how and where it's being used and where it's being stored, it could also get into some other legal gray area or other regulations, depending on who's using it. My before and after plastic surgery photos, is that HIPAA? Is that what you're trying to tell me here, Killian? I mean, you did go all the way down to Brazil for it and did a heck of a job. Yes, I didn't even realize I'd done that. It was so thorough a job they did. (laughs) 
I also like how Mike thinks that I play Candy Crush on the subway. I assume you're you're a fancy New Yorker. I assume all New Yorkers play Candy Crush on the subway. Is that not <laughs> the game that everyone plays now? Forrest, do you play Candy Crush on the subway? I want to say it for the record that I absolutely do not play Candy Crush on the subway to work. <laughs> I just want that to be official and on the record. Some sort of kitten pet shop simulation. I don't know. Whatever New Yorkers do. Well, I won't bunch of comment fancy on... People. On Cat Shot Simulator, I can't comment on that, but Candy Crush, I officially do not play. No, no, fair enough. <laughs> Don't want to impugn anyone's good name here. So. so we talk about data ownership and user activity and our data. We've all heard and read, hopefully, about the latest WikiLeaks leak of over 8,000 documents of the CIA's highly classified information. It's kind of fun to read about all of the super secretive stuff that they do. But if you're responsible for this data, you're probably just really anxious and wondering who had access to this data? Why wasn't it monitored? Why wasn't I alerted? How come I didn't know? There must be some audit trail to who touched these files. What are your reactions to what happened? Well, I know for one thing, the first thing that came to my mind is looking at like all the zero days is like how many people must be working overtime this weekend, like at all these software companies who have to like come in and like start cleaning up these zero days, like just immediately all over the country, all over the world, really. Well, what what level of detail were they released at? I mean, because I think a lot of it was just like, yes, we have a zero day for XYZ system. I'm sure they called them in to investigate even the ones that weren't specified in detail to like immediately be able to start fixing. Some of the things that I read about it were, I think Apple came out with a statement pretty quickly and said, oh, we've addressed a lot of the things that were there, just the general stuff. In terms of the actual exploit tools and things like that, I believe Julian Assange said that he would like give access to you know, Microsoft and Apple and, and some of the other Cisco and some of the other ones to the tools. He wasn't going to make the actual code public until they had a chance to address it for whatever that's worth, I guess. So is WikiLeaks practicing responsible disclosure here? I'd say no. <laughs> They're just throwing these things out there. Responsible-ish disclosure? Well, it's disclosure, so it's halfway there, right? <laughs> yeah, 50% is pretty good. Ible disclosure. So. <laughs> no one's really safeguarded from any kind of disclosure. There is another leak at an, and another company, when Mike sent me the link about this Reverse City Media company that had a data breach, they had a poorly configured backup that exposed them. And I've never heard of this media company before. Like initially, my thoughts were, oh, they might be some marketing agency. They might be making videos or music, publishing something. But in fact, they're in the spam business. And whenever I think of spam, I think of these nebulous, almost mythical mythical creatures, but they actually have Facebook accounts. And when the story broke about this spam company and their breach, I think the CEO changed their title from River City Media to another marketing media style type name because they can. They can just start up a new company. While people aren't that sympathetic to what's happened, it's still a breach. And there was a lot going on in the discovery of this incident. What was most interesting for you guys, like how they operated their business or how these researchers were able to 
figure out, oh, these guys, they weren't so great on with their security and their backups, and that made them vulnerable. One interesting thing that came out of this was in terms of their tactics and how they did spam. And they were able to, in a lot of cases, bypass many of the protections by skipping interacting with email over SMTP and instead writing code that interacted directly with the Gmail and, you know, the Outlook, the large web systems, email services directly. And in doing that, they were able to jump around endpoint security. That's how you describe it in the email space. And I thought that was really interesting as a tactic. And they were able to send, you know, millions and millions of emails much faster than you would be otherwise, which I thought was really interesting. And yeah, then to see all of this information come out and in a lot of ways, it's just an email and something we, we talk about a lot is like, what's the harm in this? But like more spam, like they were already spamming you. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't any other information. I, I feel like this was a missed opportunity for them to change their name to River City Ransom. Nice. Pretty bit. Pretty, we didn't plan. Yeah. There we yeah. go. I got all the references today. What I did find interesting from a securities perspective is one of the, the tactics they used to get around this was um, the, the kind of the warm domains, um, kind of going around and trying to buy up established domains to avoid some detection, just because it's very suspicious when a brand new domain appears, and then you start getting all these emails from it. So it's an interesting side to the internet market, I guess, on how they can try and avoid some of the detection based on domain age. Yeah, all the different heuristics. Another scam operation. So what happened, it happened with TalkTalk. So these people, whoever they are, they convinced victims to, they called them pretending they're from TalkTalk, and then they convinced the victims to install a computer virus and then once they did that, a separate team, they would use that virus to gain access to some of the victims' online banking accounts. And so while TalkTalk, they had a breach a while back, the article said it wasn't related. But I think this story highlights why it's so important to know when a breach happens in order to possibly prevent and to have some foresight into future possible scams like this, because the article also speculates that there are some employees that were selling TalkTalk customer data. So you really don't know maybe where the source might be coming from, but it's definitely important to know when a breach happens. What are your opinions to this article? I thought this was interesting in that, again, what's the harm? Like, what's the harm in this data getting out there? And this is data I wouldn't have thought was particularly useful, that it was basically just like the names and phone numbers. And Talk Talk is, it's for U.S. people, that's like saying AT&T or Verizon. It's this ISP mobile company. And what was given away, what they lost were their records. And then along with that, they had a call center. And so part of the information that I wouldn't have thought was useful, but was the actual official checklist of like what to check and what to talk to the customers about and to be as legitimate as possible. And that let them sort of get over a trust barrier. And then with that, make it appear that they were real. So that's not information I would have considered to be sensitive, like the the call center script, like, yeah, like, you put that as a PDF on the website, <laughs> but it turned out to be very useful that a lot of that data came from that, that situation with the call center. That said, one thing I noticed was that the like fake script of the scam call center 
was pretty funny, actually. Like some of the the lines that were like, you know, responding to someone say like, oh, you sound like a scammer. And like their response, like really should not put anyone at ease that they're not actually a scammer. <laughs> like, yeah, some, if, if you guys get a chance to read that script, I, I definitely recommend you you give it a look. It's great. I think these scams happen pretty frequently. I was just talking to a friend probably earlier this year, and they said that they do that a lot in Mexico. And so as long as you have like some curiosity, imagination, and know how to work your way around technology, you can do a lot of damage, it sounds like, just based on all the different articles that we've discussed today and over the past year, every well, day, actually, since the beginning of, t- of time. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say what I think is insidious about this is that it's almost what you would want to have happen, that your ISP, you would, you would hope that if someone who that isn't terribly technical and they have, you know, a virus that's spamming people and being used as a proxy for all these horrible things, that at some point that the ISP would call them up and say, hey, can you please install the antivirus software we provide for free with, to all our customers just to deal with this? And this sort of hijacks on that good notion and then installs a, a horrible thing in, in place of it. And I imagine for my parents or anyone else, it's really difficult to sort out what is what is real and what isn't. Well, that's in any security practice. I mean, people tend to be the, the weakest link, and that's nothing revolutionary because we have the we want to trust people. It's in our nature to want to trust people. I don't know. I'm very paranoid, but it kind of is a bummer to kind of have to be critical ever every single phone call and every single email you get. And that's kind of where we're at. Okay, so let's talk about something closer to our wheelhouse then. Like, we don't really know these Tech Talk victims, but there is an article about a sysadmin. You guys interact with them pretty regularly. There was a sysadmin that was charged with felony count of intentionally causing damage to their employer's computer system without authorization. And then so he was found guilty of that. And then he appealed and he said that, well, all sysadmins in the world, they're responsible for deleting and archiving backups and making edits to the system. So uh, like I said, you have a little bit of imagination, curiosity, and and possible wordsmithing, and he can be his own attorney. (laughs) I mean, looking at it from a rational kind of normal human being, you look and you go, that, it, that's ridiculous. But, I mean, they are playing on the, the very kind of specific wording and definition of authorized. And each individual thing he did, making configuration changes, deleting backups, things like that, were authorized as part of his role. But then again, it comes to the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. What was his intention of doing this? Was it done in, in good faith? This might be really interesting in how it plays out because... The wording as it is, is so broad and vague that it doesn't exactly spell it out, like what is authorized. And it's kind of looking at the big picture, taking a step back from the individual tasks. If you kind of zoom in and go, he deleted a backup, that is authorized. Um, but the intent behind it is paints a very much different story. So seeing how this is going to play out in court, if they buy that, could have big ramifications in the future. Either either companies are going to have to get really creative in their legalese, I guess, writing these policies, or maybe the, the board is not going to really like it if all of their trusted employees that have to do this type of management could potentially destroy their system and face no repercussions. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how this plays out. As a technical person, I have been asked many times to look at someone's computer. Even if I haven't done anything to it, I know that for the next like month, 
maybe more. Anything that happens to it is my fault. That's just a given. Everybody knows that. Everyone's in that situation. I have nightmares about this sort of situation where who knows the whole story here as far as this goes. Like, because it sounds like this place was had all sorts of issues and they had a denial of service attack. They had other issues with the network going down. If you have a breach and you're concerned that the credentials are bad and he turns off the VPN, well, that's taking reasonable actions. He's called in over the weekend to, to deal with this. He's the only IT person. He's just sick of this. Like maybe he just walks away and then they come in, they find out, well, all this other stuff is messed up. Did he, did he actually do that on purpose? Did it, it, was it just messed up to begin with? Was he halfway to breaking it down to put it back up again? It's troubling to me in, in that same sort of way where I've dealt with unreasonable people and people have unreasonable expectations of technology and IT people. You bring up a couple great points. He sort of admitted, I believe, that he did kind of trash it. I think there was a lot of circumstances that we might not know in the situation. But I mean, the, the point that I thought interesting that you brought up was IT and technology people it's always our fault. And I think, I think you're exactly right. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. You're kind of on the hook or under the bus with technology because a lot of people, I think, look at it you know, like a magical black box, like you're a wizard conjuring something. And, and that does lead to the unreasonable expectation or demands put on you. It reminded me of, oh, that's probably what happened to Google last weekend when they accidentally spread fake news and then they get a whole bunch of bad press for sort of accidentally doing that. So what happened was they have this algorithm where they pull text from like a third party site un unknowingly. And so they accidentally spread fake news. And, and then depending on how wide your reach is, you could you would never hear the end of it. Do you think it's a problem of the algorithm or is it just a general tech problem? I, I'm not sure it's accidentally. Like it says accidentally spreads fake news. But uh, to me, this was a Google egg. Like it was one of those like, if you search for this super specific term, then you get back this super specific response, which some people took the time to almost like trick Google into. And it was, if you asked, is Obama planning a coup? It would tell you, oh yeah, he's planning a coup. And <laughs> if you weren't asking that question, it wouldn't just come up. So it seems a bit of a non-story to me on that basis, that if you ask like, how many aliens are there on Mars? And they're like, oh, they aren't aliens. That's where they live. That They're only aliens to us. Like it doesn't, it's this weird situation. It's not like a, a standard kind of thing. I could be wrong, but I could swear that this was one of those things where if you ask like Google Home, like whatever question, and it pulls it, it like automatically pulls it from news articles. And in this particular case, it didn't really do a good job of kind of sifting through what was reputable and what wasn't. You know, I don't think it was one of those like kind of like fun questions. That's the impression I got, at least. Yeah, the featured snippets come up for a lot of things. Like if you ask, like a lot of things from Wikipedia come up that if you ask like when someone was born, some famous person will tell you, oh, they were born here on this date and stuff. Yeah. And it was one of those that was from a site that maybe wasn't reputable. But it was, a, it was a very specific query. And that stuff has been around for a long time that a lot of it's, I don't even want to mention because it's horrible things about people. But, you know, associating like one bad term to like one politician or something. Well, most important question, I think, actually, then, is would you swap out your Alexa for a Google Home after hearing about this story? I want I want them both. I want them to talk to each other in just like a never-ending <laughs> loop. If they talk to each other, would they then be planning a coup against Mike? Yes. Yes. I hope so. 
if you put 100,000 Google Homes and 100,000 Alexas in a, with like 200,000 typewriters, would they eventually plan a coup? <laughs> I, I hope so. Is there a tool for that? <laughs> um, for this week's tool, I actually want to recommend a blog post, which is Practical PowerShell for IT Security on File Event Monitoring. This is on our blog and was written by our own Andy, Andy Green. So check out blog.veronis.com. It's a really great introduction to using PowerShell in a very practical way. So I think everyone everyone should go check that out. Thanks, Mike, Killian, Forrest, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find some of the stories we're discussing. You can find us at infosec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again next week. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.